0: folks. It is me. It is me. It is Mr. Sensational Gino Vega coming to you with a very special episode 89 of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast. That's right. Episode 89. And I come to you as I've said on and off over the episodes, but I feel like I've been saying more often lately, and it's not not an act, not a work, not a gimmick, not a shtick. It is very true. Um, I feel like uh, the show's on some sort of precipice of existence. And not out of any kind of, like, uh, you know, this isn't like some uh, mood-related thing or anything like that. I just, I am quickly... Running out of content, it feels like. Because once again, this show, the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega show on the IC Robots Radio Network, is a show where I, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, a very ordinary, average, middle aged person, plumb the depths of my psyche, um, and mine all of the unremarkable material that is there, attempt to synthesize it, and turning into content to share with you, the tens of ones of listeners out there in the podcast world, um, share that content with you for roughly 30 minutes, give or take, once a week, so long as I'm able to make it to the microphone. And there just feels like there's less and less content to mine, which is not really a surprise because once again, I, I'm not this is not a put on about the unremarkable life. I at this point in my life. I am married. I have two children. I live in a townhouse. Uh, the kids are at the same school. So when I wake up in the morning, I take them to school. I come home. I clean up around the house. I make myself something to eat, I go pick up the kids from school, Uh, one of the kids and myself go to the gym after school, I come home, I get them some stuff to eat, Ms. S., my wife, comes home, we make dinner, I clean up after dinner, I go to sleep, and only to begin the cycle again the next day during the week. On Wednesday nights, Ms. S. and I tend to go out, and then we usually go out together sometimes during the afternoon on Fridays because she's off every other Friday. And then if not, we go out either Friday night or Saturday night, um, and otherwise hang around the house during the weekend or go somewhere with the kids. The point of all this is there's just there's not a lot of... Um, uh, fertile ground for wild and crazy podcasting stories with that kind of lifestyle, and I don't come to you with this lifestyle out of some sort of glumness or regret. I'm perfectly happy. Like the the static nature of my lifestyle right now, the boringness of my lifestyle right now is kind of like the culmination of um, years of work. So it's not. Uh, this isn't like some railing against my boring life. I'm quite happy for things to be sort of settled into this routine, but it's not a routine that offers a lot of material in the form of content to share with others. And it's not a lifestyle that really, for me, begs the need to share much with others. Like, it's not, you know, uh, I feel like there's been times in my life when I was younger and I was doing creative stuff, like I was in a band or I was doing this or that There's always some level that you're doing it um, because you're seeking out other people. You're seeking out interaction. You're seeking out uh, um, maybe praise from other people. You're seeking out attention from other people. You're seeking out reasons to exist with other people, interact with other people. I think I already said interact, but whatever. At this point in my life, I just, I don't, I don't know. I I don't know that I need that anymore. I don't know. I mean, I do. Of course I enjoy... The interactions with the people that I know, you know, I like trolling at teen Wundle, um, on the tweets. Um, I like seeing my friends and acquaintances out there in the world. I don't, I don't mean this as some misanthropic antisocial way, but I'm just not really, there's not, that part of me that craves putting myself out there in a performance sense seems to be dying by the day. I don't know. Um. I guess I guess this all sounds rather glum, but I don't mean it to be. This is a good thing. I feel like I I've I found a certain amount of contentment in my life, but that contentment makes it harder by the week for me to want to hear myself talk and do shtick and be annoying for thirty minutes or so once a week. But this is not goodbye. This is not the end. I were I'm keeping keeping on um, as it were. As I mentioned recently, at the very least, until episode one hundred, we got to make it to a round number here. And it's not even like I'm necessarily—I'm not saying like uh, episode one hundred and then peace. It's episode one hundred, and then maybe I'll rethink what exactly it is I'm doing on the mic. Maybe maybe a format change, maybe a subject change. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe it'll just be the same thing, and we'll keep doing it till episode one thousand. I don't know. I'm just saying. going through sort of a creative content lull lately because there is just not that much to talk about on my end. Maybe it's time for someone else to step up um, on the IC Robots Radio Network. Someone that has a more interesting outward life. Someone that wants to put their voice out there. Maybe it is time for the Teen Wundle Show on the IC Robots Radio Network. But that's a story for another day. Let us continue with very special episode 89. Um... Speaking of Teen Wundle, here's something I can talk about. So, for those of you who are somehow new to the show, which I don't think is possible, I think we've we've reached audience saturation, the tens of ones that are here, that are going to be here, are here, and you all know the drill, but just just to uh, put it out there, uh, Teen Wundle is a fellow that I've known for some time now, it's so funny, it feels like uh, someone that I've known very briefly, but I actually met at Teen Wundle, um, I think in 2009. Long time ago at this point. Um, but met Team Wendell through music. He, at that time, was into posting um, YouTube clips of um, recordings from obscure 1990s pop punk bands. And my obscure 1990s pop punk band was one such band. So we somehow met through that and on uh, an online meeting and uh, became Facebook friends and have, have remained connected on social media ever since. Um, and I like to give teen Wendell a hard time from time to time as as you've heard before but but nothing but love for teen Wendell it's all in good fun. he's kind of like the the little sibling that you're giving like noogies to and uh punching on the shoulder and stuff like that. Not that I really did that to my own real life younger sibling, maybe that's why I do it to Wundle virtually, but uh anyway, apologies, Wendell uh one love and all that, but uh, so I was talking to him recently, and I think. I think we were probably bantering. I was probably giving him a hard time about his wrestling fandom. And somehow he hearkened back to this fact that I talked about this memory on the show within the last few episodes, and at this point I can't even remember why. But I talked about um, really enjoying some years back going to a weekend of shows put on by New Japan Pro Wrestling, shows that took place in Long Beach, California, and I went with my friend Jerry, and then Wendell was there. And it was the first and only time I've met Wendell in person. Um, and again, Wendell could only be bothered to make it for one day of a two-day event. He couldn't, couldn't, um, couldn't be persuaded to hang around at the after-party afterwards. He came by and was just like, hey, guys. And then he, then he left. Um, not that that after-party was much to write home about. It was a bunch of obnoxious wrestling fans. That was actually brutal. The, Wendell made the right choice there because Jerry and I went to this uh the a guy that runs like a new japan fan podcast had set up this uh meet this this get together after i think it was after the first show and it was at some brewery in Long Beach california, but it was all these really annoying really hyper pro wrestling fans, and they thought. All the staff at this place were just—we're were going to be endlessly amused by them continuing their pro wrestling fandom out into the real world. So um, there's in pro wrestling there's these chants that people like to do in the audience, um, and so there's like. Uh, Sometimes if they're watching a match and they they think that the match is um, being executed well, like they're seeing moves that they like and and so on and so forth, they will begin chanting, this is awesome, this is awesome. Uh, Wendell's a big fan of that one. Or if two guys are having a really epic match and it's going on and on and on, they'll do this chant, fight forever, fight forever. Another, Another Wendell staple. But there's one that I've always found just beyond the pale, obnoxious, and it's um, when a wrestler's doing some move and uh, and you of course these moves are quote unquote fake, you know they're predetermined, whatever. Um, so when a wrestler is executing a move on another professional wrestler, it's not like in like a real combat sport, it's like boxing or mixed martial arts, like someone tries to kick someone else in the face and they miss. Okay, so they missed. But they were actually really trying to kick the person in the face. The other person was really trying to uh, avoid the kick. In wrestling, the two people are actually cooperating on these moves. So it is possible sometimes when you're trying to do these athletic, physical feats of, of, of uh, performance art that a mistake is going to be made. Someone is going to mess up a move. There's a, a really annoying wrestling fan term for this. Is, it, it was a botch! he or she botched. Oh, how th- th- this nerd is sitting there, you know, Wendell sitting there in his, in his living room with his little, uh, hello kitty television that he has. And he's watching, um, Sabu slip on a, on a rope ring from some old ECW DVD. And he's like, he botched, he botched. It's like, bro, you couldn't have even, I, I'm just kidding. W- Wendell would never do such a thing. Uh, I, I'm envisioning some proverbial, angry wrestling fan tripping about botching. The guy himself could not even like climb up into the ring if he tried to but he's he's sitting here watching these people kill themselves. He botched. He botched. I've never liked that. So um one of the I mean not that you have to like everything you see in the wrestling ring. I understand that too. But uh just when it comes to like these slip-ups and stuff that happen, just kind of like let it it's part of part of the process, part of the show. It's not a, it's not the way that that particular art form works. There are going to be hiccups, there are going to be mistakes. It's actually a, a Marvel that it doesn't happen constantly, and the people aren't just getting like injured and killed twenty four seven. So the 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 slip up is going to happen. Just kind of look the other way and let it go. But there's this chant that goes along with the idea of he botched, he botched. That is, you effed up, you effed up, you effed up. Without the effed, because they're not on a family podcasting network like we are. And I've I've just found that to be very, um, just like why we, I don't know. It's not, uh, it's not fun. It's not, it just, it's like, why do we have to do this? Uh, anyway, at this after party, all these obnoxious, belligerent, drunk, gamer nerd wrestling fans descend on this place. And, um, you can tell like the, the servers working there are like, oh my God. Um, cause they're not expecting this. I think the organizers had claimed they'd set up some group deal for everyone, but they either they hadn't actually set it up or they misunderstood what was happening or somehow didn't come through. Anyway, the whole thing was like a cluster and it was taking forever and there was this huge line. And then at one point, like a server brought the wrong thing or like dropped something and all these guys start chanting, you effed up, you effed up, you effed up. And I'm just like, I don't even want to be associated with this. And I think we we, we, we cut out of there pretty quick. So anyway, Wendell actually chose wisely to not, not hang around for the, you effed up, you effed up. Uh, Gamer nerd uh, wrestling extravaganza. But um, anyway, uh, that being said, so I met Wundle at this event. We both stood in line to get into the first night of this event, and then we went our separate ways to our separate seats at the first night of this event. Now, somehow, we were talking about this event recently, reminiscing about it, and... At this event, at the time, it was a kind of a novelty, as I've, I'm sure I've spoken about before. It was a novelty that this Japanese wrestling promotion was putting on this show here in the United States, and so uh, you, as you were waiting to get in, you know, you could see, like Jerry and I, when we were walking up, we actually saw some of the performers for the event walking up the street in their street clothes to go into the event. And as you're waiting in line, you could also see there were some hangers on that weren't actually on the show, that were, but were just like hanging out at the show who were uh, notable wrestling personalities. In particular, I remember seeing, because I actually briefly interacted with him, uh, this professional wrestler who went by the name of um, Haku or King Haku in uh, WWF. He went by the name of Meng in WCW. Islander guy has this whole gimmick. He's supposed to be like, if you believe what old time wrestlers say, he was like the real life toughest guy in wrestling brother. He could tear your head off and rip you in two. Um, but anyway, uh, he was there, but, uh, I believe one of the tag teams that was on the show, the gorillas of destiny, G O D God are his sons or one of them is his son or there's some relationship there. So he was there, um, by way of them. And I can't remember if he came out on stage and did anything. Um, but anyway, so there were, there were other known wrestlers at the show who, weren't ne- who were not necessarily performing on the show. And you could kind of see them flitting around because this venue was not so big that like, you didn't see what was going on backstage. Now, Wundle, as we were reminiscing about this, claims that a wrestler known as CM Punk was in attendance. Now, for those of you out—I should have uh, played the wrestling warning, but I didn't have it queued up. So we are, we are talking about wrestling. I apologize. There is a wrestler by the name of C.M. Punk. And C.M. Um, Punk is one of the more famous personalities in contemporary wrestling. To show you what is—this is not really wrestling's fault. But So back in, like, 1986, if I had mentioned Hulk Hogan, even if you didn't give a wit about wrestling, even if you didn't care about wrestling, you probably knew who Hulk Hogan was— in 2022, if you don't know anything about wrestling, you don't give a wit about wrestling. And I say CM Punk, you probably don't know who he is, even though he's one of the most well-known wrestlers at this current point in time. But I can't really bash wrestling for that. I think it's more just entertainment has become so fragmented um, because we no longer all sit around as a culture watching the same, you know, four network television stations all at the same time. Everyone is, you know, on their own. Curated, ta- uh, personally tailored path of entertainment. So it makes sense that things aren't as, as widespreadly known. You know, it's the same thing with like rock star. Like back in the day, you asked someone about Madonna. Your grandma knew who Madonna was. Now your grandma's not necessarily going to know who insert some other similar thing. I don't even know who would be similar now, but you know what I'm saying. Anyway, so for just a little background, CM Punk is a popular wrestler. His whole kind of claim to fame is he was in WWE back in like. 2012, I mean, he was in there prior, but around 2012, I think, is when this happened. He was in WWE, and he did this whole thing where he got really popular, but, like, the WWE management wasn't pushing him, pushing being the term for, like, promoting to the level that, like, his popularity warranted um, because they didn't understand why he was popular because, at the time, WWE was still being run by Vince McMahon, who was an old man. He didn't understand why people, like, this skinny, dopey guy with tattoos. Vince McMahon still thought everyone wanted to see seven-foot-tall, still-rooted-out guys, and CM Punk is not that. He looks like just kind of an average Joe that you would run into. uh, My friend Jerry's Record Store, for instance. Um, Anyway, uh, he got really popular, and then his contract was up, and so in order for them to re-sign him, he had all these demands, and he got to go out there and he got to do this uh, speech on TV where he did all this real, there's this whole thing in wrestling that people uh, tend to like when the wrestlers flirt with like, you know, yeah, it's fake, but I'm going to talk about real stuff. I'm going to talk about backstage stuff. I'm going to get real inside baseball on live TV and kind of break the fourth wall, blah, 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 blah. So he did this famous thing known as the pipe bomb promo where he spoke a bunch of his truths about WWE management, and how much it sucked, the kind of thing you would expect that someone would get fired for doing. Or it, but it, it was all agreed upon. It was all planned. Um, so he kind of had this like, Rebel popularity. He was a rebel, Dottie, a loner. And then eventually, he got more and more disgruntled with WWE, and he left altogether, and he left wrestling altogether, and he was done with wrestling. He got his behind beat in a few fights in UFC. Um, But anyway, around the time of the Long Beach wrestling show, he was out of the wrestling industry entirely. But he was probably, like for a lot of the people in attendance there would have been one of their most revered wrestling characters. Because the kind of people who were going to see New Japan Pro Wrestling at that time were the sort of, um, you know, wrestling fans who were... It'd be like... um, I hate to use this term because people always want to say if people dig past like the most surface, casual level of interest in something that they're being hipstery which is kind of a dismissive term. But if someone listened to music that wasn't nickelback, you wouldn't necessarily say they were being hipstery. You know, they're just liking stuff that has a little more nuance, a little more depth. Um, so with wrestling, you had WWE at the time, which was basically the nickelback of uh, professional wrestling. And so if you were going to see New Japan, you were more into like, I don't know, indie music or something. I, I don't want to try to come up with perfect analogies, but you know, it's a more, it's a more, uh, exacting fan base, so it's a more, um, hipstery fan base, let's just say that, but, uh, anyway, uh, so CM Punk was kind of a symbol for those people, because he had been shunned by the Nickelback mainstream company, and he was kind of out there floating in the ether, and everyone kind of wanted to see him come back to a fringier, hipsterier company to really have the kind of matches that they thought he should be able to have. Anyway, um... Wendell alleges that CM Punk was at this show and that we saw him while we were standing in line, that he was hanging out backstage. And I have no recollection of this whatsoever. Um, None. But I don't want to discount that as I'm getting older, I am starting to not have the same kind of photographic recollection for all these little bits and details and moving parts anymore. But at the same time, I feel like if this happened, we would not have been the only people that saw this. And this would have been a huge story in wrestling media. Like everyone would because the speculation would have been CM Punk who's not in wrestling is seen at this event, therefore that means maybe he's going to be wrestling for New Japan Pro Wrestling. That would have been a huge story, all kinds of gossip, all kinds of speculation. And I remember none of it. I did a quick search on the Google machine. I saw none of it. So Wendell, I I don't know what's going on here. I don't know if this is a Mandela effect thing. I don't know if we're just living in two separate realities. I don't know if, going back to last episode, Cyclops opened his eyes and, like, I fell in or Wendell fell out. I, I don't know what's going on here. I have no recollection. Ask my friend Jerry. He has no recollection. Looked online. No chatter about CM Punk being at those shows. And I feel like that would have been a big piece of gossip. But I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't I, I don't want to discredit my boy Wendell. It's not like he's just going to, like, be... You know, hallucinating and making stuff up out of out of nowhere, so I don't know that's where I am with that, and that actually <laughs> that was gonna be a little aside as I thought about something to talk about, and that has taken us through a large portion of um this week's episode, so maybe we are not um as close to death's door as initially feared and with that, um let's segue to what I was actually um intending to talk about this episode, or what I decided I was going to talk about um, to uh, create content in a vacuum where there was none. Uh, when speaking about current event, uh, current life fails when there's nothing to talk about, one can always go back to the well of retro, the well of in my day. Um, so that's what we're going to do. Um, I may have already talked about some of this on a m- podcast of your, and if I... Did I apologize? It, it, because this particular podcast is so off the cuff, is so free flowing, is so improv, it's not like I keep a list of um, topics handy that I've already covered. I kind of do, in my mind at least. But when we're talking about episodes that happened long, long ago before the extended break that I took, which I'm realizing now that was a long time ago because I. I stopped doing this podcast because I got a full-time job. And I got hired for that full-time job the night that Mr. Trump was elected president of the United States. The, The woman that was doing the hiring called me that night or emailed me that night and told me I had the job. So that was like what? That was like 2017. So 2017 is when I stopped doing the show, I think. If if memory serves me correctly, as the Iron Chef chairman is wont to say. Stopped doing it in 2017. I didn't start again until 20 during the pandemic. So 17 to 18, 18 to 19, 19 to 20. Factoid Mary's can correct me, but I think that's three years. So three years of inactivity. And wow, like two-ish years back on. But anyway, anything that I was doing before the inactivity was at least, at this point, 17 to 18, 18 to 19, 19, 20, 21. Like five years ago. So... Please excuse me for not remembering what the sh- 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 I was talking about five plus years ago. But anyway, I've decided to um, give myself something to talk about to uh, shore up this content vacuum. I'm going to spend a little time talking about my history with video gaming. And that's the topic that I worry I have dipped into before, but it's been so long that if you're really someone from that extreme fringe of the tens of ones, just, just bear with me. You don't got to sit there and be like, he botched, he botched. You just just think an old guy is going to repeat himself from time to time. So, video games. We're going to start today. We don't have a ton of time left today, so we're certainly only going to scratch the surface today. But this is going to be something, I'm going to do one of those couple of week, multi-week stream down this particular or sail down this particular stream of consciousness video games I'm not like some it's weird because I'm, I'm not like a hardcore gamer I don't think but video games have been a constant part of my life for just about as long as I can remember um, but also my taste in video games is weird idiosyncratic what else is new in the Vegaverse but we'll get into all of that but let's go back down to where it all began. My earliest memory of video games, and I know I talked about this before, but again it's been a while. Earliest memory of video games was a the arcade. In particular, there was an arcade in the town of Atascadero that I moved to when I was about five, called Starcade. So early memories in Starcade, but also early memories of home video games, and I, I do want to talk more about home video games in this particular deep dive that we're going to do over the next few episodes. So let's just, let's let's set the arcade aside entirely. Um, set the arcade aside entirely. Earliest memory of home video games was not in my own home it would be in other people's homes and it was largely this phenomenon that i've described um, when it comes to other um, forms of uh electronic media electronic entertainment from the 1980s uh it was very common in my sphere back then that uh I would either become friends with a kid whose parents were divorced and we'd go over to the dad's house or my parents would become friends. G- generally my dad, because he would meet these guys through his work that were kind of like a few years behind him and on the come up and he was kind of mentoring them in their career and they would be generally be single. So guys that were living by themselves, usually in apartments, with a certain amount of disposable income so they were buying whatever the new gadgets were at the time. And... At this time, early 80s, is when a lot of your early video game gadgets were among those coming down the pike. So I certainly recall... I recall in particular this one kid's dad had an Atari 2600, and he had Pitfall. And I remember playing Pitfall while I was over there, and just looking at that console and that wood grain... And those little, um, they weren't, the the switches, I was going to say knobs, they weren't knobs, the switches that were on the Atari 2600 console, uh, there was like a select switch or something, let let me look this uh, up here on the Google machine, because factoid mirrors are going to get, um, all up in a bunch here, if I don't do this at least somewhat by the book, um, so yeah, on your old Atari 2600, yeah, you had the the power on and off switch, you had the TV type color black and white switch, you had, um, I can't read it in this picture. <sighs> Come on, man. <sighs> Unreal. Okay, so on this one I'm looking at, you had a left difficulty A and B switch, a right difficulty A and B switch then a game select switch and a game reset switch. Those difficulty switches and the game select switch, I don't remember ever actually using in my extensive Atari 2600 career. But I remember just uh, the look of the wood grain, the look of those switches at this divorced man's apartment. It looked like the most state-of-the-art machinery that the world had ever produced. And Pitfall looked like just this, this... Unreal instance of electronic artistic creativity where anything was possible, which is hilarious because if you know anything about those Attorney 2,600 games, very little was possible. Those games were extremely constrictive. Um, But I remember just feeling like um, when you would be uh, uh, going along the screen in Pitfall and you would see um, some scorpions chilling underground. I thought that it was somehow possible to go further underground to interact with what was down there. Obviously, we know that's not the case. Uh, further down the road, Pitfall 2, this this notion did get explored. and We'll talk about that. But anyway, the, the point I'm trying to uh, get here is just the early feeling of wonderment. Um, seeing these gaming machines seeing these video games Uh, another one that really blew my mind and I know I've talked about this one before this example before but we're we're just going to do it one more time for a rehash Um, my dad my parents had a friend, a couple I think the guy's name was (laughs) the guy's name was either Don Johnson or John Johnson, either way kind of a funny name But he was kind of this, in my memory, 1970s, early 1980s guy with, like, the long hair and the beard. But he was one of those long hair and beard guys that would, like, uh, you had to not get it twisted. Because although it was kind of that hippie-ish look, by that point in time in the West Coast of the United States, that look was just kind of trendy. So dudes that ran the gamut had that look. So this guy was actually kind of a, a mutant and, which is funny because my parents were like wild and crazy left-wing hippies but they are friends with this dude I think what it was is they were friends with his spouse or significant other that's what it was the spouse or significant other I don't think they were actually married um, uh, had been my mom's college BFF and then um, she'd become friends with my parents then you know how it is then you become friends with like the your friend's significant other so that's how john johnson don johnson came on the scene but john don johnson was like this kind of angry um grumpy guy i don't know if it's fair to say he was a mutant per se in in uh contemporary parlance like political ideology parlance he was just a very angry uptight grumpy person he wasn't a, he wasn't a laid-back hippie that's what i'm trying to say that's what i'm trying to say here and don john johnson uh, my parents always warned me before we would go over there That he hated children, he hated kids. So I was a little nervous going over there because i being a kid myself. Uh, Sidebar: I find nothing more absurd than the the gimmick of hating kids. Totally understand if you don't want to have your own kids. No one should be forced to have their own kids. No one should if if you don't want to have kids and you don't want to put in that work because it's it's like it's a life changing, life altering um, uh, decision. And I totally understand why someone wouldn't want to do it, and I fully respect why someone would want to do it. And actually, in my experience working with children, and my experience knowing children as an adult, there's very little worse that you can do to a child than—it's than, uh, it, it's a grim world for a child that whose who's people that brought them into the world didn't want them or don't, don't care about them, don't want them to exist. That's not a good look. So if you're not into having kids, that's one thing. That's totally cool. But actively hating children, which is a gimmick that I, I, I sometimes hear um, employed by individuals, very strange to me, and I know I'm sure I've bored the tens of ones with this before, but I will revisit one last time here. Were you not yourself once a child? One cannot choose to not be a child when one is a child. The entire, our entire life as human beings interacting out in the world with other human beings necessitates children. It seems a very strange thing to dislike. (laughs) It's it's more like... And other people had to deal with how irritating you were as a child. So you mean to say that your ego is so vast, your lack of self-awareness so deep, that it was okay to inflict yourself on all the adults around you in your own childhood. But heaven forbid, God forbid, another child come into this world... And afflict themselves on you. It's a strange gimmick. It was one that Don John Johnson embraced wholeheartedly, though. So anyway, I remember being very nervous going over there. I remember one time I was eating soup, eating soup at Don John Johnson's dinner table. A little drip of the soup uh, landed on the table from my my out of my spoon onto the table, and Don John Johnson glared at me and pointed at the drip of soup while, like, trembling with anger. And I took a napkin and I wiped off the drip of soup Um, in order to maintain the peace with Don John Johnson. However, Don John Johnson had some fancy pants Atari. It wasn't, um... It wasn't a 2600. Let me see if I can figure out what it was real quick here. (laughs) And I probably identified it the last time I talked about this on the show. But, um... Let's see here real quick. Um... What was it that Don John Johnson had? Um, Don John Johnson... (sighs) I think Don John Johnson might have had an Atari 800. Let's see here. Yeah, it, the 400 and the 800, were, which were, what were they? They were basically like, uh, um, come on, man, this is, explain what they are. Don't just tell me when they were released. Um, I know the, the hardcore factoids are out there, but being like, bro, don't you, the, the retro community is up in arms that I don't have committed to memory what this was. So it was essentially an 8-bit machine. Um, and I think they were intended to be more like um, uh, not just a, a, a game machine like the 2600, but I think you were you, you were supposed to be able to do a little bit more with the, the, the Atari computers, the Atari 800s. Um, I mean, they were, they were essentially like a very primitive home computer, but as I'm just seeing now on this Google machine, this Wikipedia entry, that the, the video games were kind of the main event, the big draw. Um, but uh, if you, you were a fancy guy like Don John Johnson, I think he was an attorney. You know you had a little more scratch, so why not why not pump up the volume get get the more powerful machine? get the Atari eight hundred? I think he was the only person I ever knew, the only one I ever saw in the wild. Years later, um, I talked about it last week that bulletin board system metropolis that I used to like to call and uh, interact with when I was a kid. that was run on a, um, another iteration a further down the line iteration of Atari. Uh, home computers. I always found it wild that Atari made these sort of like half, ha- half aid uh, computers, and I always kind of wanted one. I always thought it was kind of cool, but I never got one. Um, one of my friends, uh, Jay, Jay, who was involved in the Frog with the Flute crime story from some episodes ago. His parents bought him one of these um, Atari systems that wasn't strictly a video game system. It was like borderline home computer, and I can't remember which one it was. But the fatal flaw there was I, I never really got to see what, it was, uh, what the hubbub was all about, what it could really do. Because um, they bought him the system, but then they didn't understand why he needed additional games for it. They're like, We're, we, already, we already bought it for you and it already has a game. Why do you need another game? So he had like a, I think it was like a Larry Bird and Dr. J one-on-one basketball game where you could break the, the backstop and a janitor would have to come clean it up. It's the only game I ever played on that. Much like Don John Johnson's Atari, um, he had this one game, Minor 2049er. And that game, I think more than anything else, is responsible for my lifelong love of video games. Um, but you know what, folks? We're out of time here, so we're going to leave it on a cliffhanger. Now that I'm all fired up, I realize I have much more to speak about than I actually thought. I apologize for being out on a ledge to open this episode with. We're going nowhere. We're making it to episode 1000. We are back next week with more talk about my video game history and whatever other ancillary nonsense happens along the way. I will see you next time. You know what, folks? I am so hopped up right now. I'm going to leave you with a little outro music. This is Mr. Sensational Gina Viggo for the Mr. Sensational Gina Viggo Podcast. I am out.